Welcome to Highway Diary. This is episode 382 with my special guest, Courtney Turner. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Well, thank you for inviting me to Rebels for a Cause in Nashville, Tennessee. I had a great time. And, um, you know, I don't appreciate that you also invited Klaus Schwab Jr. because me and him, like, don't get along at all. And that caused a lot of friction in the green room. But it also, you know, in the green room... um, you know, a show was developed called Illuminati Confirmed that Harrison Smith and Klaus Schwab Jr. uh, collaborated on. So that's going to be monthly at the Vulcan Gas Company. And that was 100% because of you and Rebels for a Cause and how you have uh, the cojones to put it together. So I appreciate you. Wow. Well, thank you. That's super exciting. I can't wait to see that. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be... Kind of uh, the Infowars people are are you know we'll see what happens, but um yeah okay fun. So what yeah, is? And I'm sorry what? about adding the tension to the green room. I can see how that might have been a little challenging, but you managed it pretty well. I mean, I I wasn't aware of any kind of outburst, so that's that's good. Yeah, well, I that. like had like my little backpack because you had me do stand up too, so I had a backpack, and then like when I got to it to just take my you know to change clothes or whatever after I got sweaty, there was like a dead squirrel in the backpack, you know. So these are the kind of games that Klaus Schwab Jr. plays with me all the time, and you know it's a lot to deal with. So yeah, no, that's wow. Just yeah, next time, very well. So. Next time, just not on the same bill. Because yeah, yeah, got it, noted. Yeah, sorry and about my, that. When he's around, my mental health goes out the fucking window. You know, um, what is the origin story of Rebels for a Cause? How did this get started? That's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know that I know exactly because it morphed into something completely different. Um, but I think, you know, early, I, I guess maybe a year and a half ago, I was really starting to do like events. Um, I had done when I was in LA, I was, I'm an aerial acrobatic performer. So I would do uh, live events where I perform aerial and I did a lot of motivational speaking, usually tied to like I would perform, but I would share my personal story, my birth story, and uh, talk about movement being a metaphor for life. And it, you know, the ways that we can use movement to help us overcome adversity in other areas of life. So like physical training, but, you know, I didn't talk so much about the like physical, the physiological or cognitive or emotional benefits of, you know, physical training, which obviously are all abundant, but I really used it more as like a philosophical roadmap uh, for people to utilize it as a tool to help them overcome adversity. Anyway, all this to say that when COVID happened, obviously all the events were shut down. Aerial, I couldn't even train Aerial because uh, you know they the few studios who stayed open would they would be all masked up and they were requiring me to wear a mask, and so just both of them were not a no go for me because I'm hearing impaired, I'm visually impaired, so. I, you know, already struggled to hear the instructors or, you know, even if I was to do like an open gym, you know, if I'm working with the choreographer, I can't hear them. They're masked up. So I certainly can't read their lips. And I, you know, I, because I'm blind in one eye, I only have about 60% of the peripheral vision that somebody who sees binocularly would have. And so if I'm wearing the mask, it further reduces my already limited peripheral vision. So I'm not going to climb 26 feet in the air and invert and flip and all of that with such limited 
peripheral vision. So anyhow, all of that was shut down. And uh, when I moved, I was thinking about really starting that up again. And I had in October of last year done a pretty small event where I performed routines. I did my speech and I invited Jay Dyer to come and do a speech as well. So it was a very small scale, but I guess I was just, that was the direction I was kind of going in. I was thinking about, I just felt like with everybody being mocked down and atomized to such a great extent, even when things started to open back up again, people are being really pushed into this, uh, you know, essentially the metaverse, but they're, you know, they're so glued to all of these digital interfaces. And I, I think it's a way for them to, to really program people and target the programming. And that's something that in person people can break through. They can't really stop the, com they can censor people into oblivion when it's on a screen or through uh, the internet, but they really can't stop conversations that occur in person. So I thought that was just really important. And uh, then I had been talking with uh, uh, Scott Armstrong, who is uh, one of my co-hosts on uh, the Dialectical Dissidents, and we started something called Higher Stream Media. And uh, he was saying that he would love to do events as well. And then he put me in touch with Brent Kavanaugh. So we had kind of threw around this idea of doing some sort of an event, but uh, initially the concept was something uh, very different, much smaller. Um, yeah, and then it kind of morphed. And but I guess that's kind of the origin story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to Jay Dyer. I had a great talk with him. What a good dude. And he was telling awesome. me that he has been a serious academic and researcher, but he's trying to get into comedy because comedy is a mechanism of getting the truth out there. And yep. I've been a comic my whole life and I'm very drawn to Charlie Robinson and people like this who I can't do all this conspiracy research. That's not my lane. I'm a fucking dick joke comic. Like I'm a fucking I'm a moron. So I have blinders on just to that crap my whole life. I started when I was 16. I'm 37. And so I I told I called Charlie and I go, I steal all of your research for my benefit, for um my, you know, conspiracy comedy situation. I can't do the research these people do. They're they're in, intense. And so Jay Dyer is like starting to fuck with stand-up just to like, because a lot of the stand-up comics don't know anything because they're like me yeah. with blinders on. Just trying to craft the best, you know, dick jokes and, oh, men and women are different and all this stuff. When it's like, I feel like internally after the lockdowns, the stakes have been raised. And I also want to say that the mechanism of drug addiction, the mechanism of alcoholism is they, they are diseases of despair and you yes. gain a function despair by lack of community. So when yep. you gain a function, I, I, the COVID lockdowns, part of that was to create loneliness and despair and lack of community because then the central controllers have more power when grandma Absolutely. has less power. Absolutely. Um, and when you talk about this type of you're you're stealing his work for your benefit. Um, yes. But, uh, I, but I phoned I, it. I phoned Charlie Robinson. I told him that he knows. So, so he, you have his his blessing to do so, yes. which is great. <laughs> but that is part of why I did CauseFest because, I, and I saw it right away, which is, and now I'm hearing more. This is amazing. Is that I, the, it is their intention to atomize and to, uh, you know, isolate and separate uh, people, people in general. But I think especially I'm seeing so much of it in the alternative spheres. And I really wanted to create some sort of a platform where people can be, collaborating where people can you know so many of these uh you know different groups that i i go to 
don't even in the freedom movement in the just in the alternative sphere altogether the patriot sphere they don't know each other and if they do they're busy like competing with each other fighting with each other and i really wanted something that would bring people together under a bigger tent and where they could collaborate because yeah everybody has such unique gifts talents experiences interests passion um you know and areas of expertise and if we collaborate i i think we're just so much more powerful that way and it's so much more fun that way so that, that was really what i wanted to see and it's really exciting to hear that so thank you Thank you. Um, Patrick Byrne, he had a great speech about the, the the pillars of communist theory being Karl Marx. And then on the other side, the pillars of radical um, conservative politics, which he cited the Austrians uh, coming from kind of Ron Paul rhetoric. So from one side to the other, I had a passed on my podcast last week and i was saying that i'm both the ron paul supporter and a bernie bro but the key to any model working is fairness i don't really get into the weeds i'm not dogmatic about the right and i'm not dogmatic about Mm -hmm. the left i'm dogmatic about anti-corruption and fairness and how if the pyramid is fair at the top then everyone kind of gets along going through i've been on productions in LA where the top was they were piece of garbage people and everyone was miserable every day on set then I've worked on other productions where everyone was happy and it was fun the whole time so that's what I see um how did Patrick Byrne get involved uh so I Patrick Byrne and I have run into each other like over the course of several years and uh it was actually at I had seen him speak uh at J6 and uh, I didn't know that much about him initially. I mean, I knew he was investigating the, uh, you know, uh, election fraud and, you know, the machines. And I knew that whole story, uh, but I really didn't know that much about him and his history other than, you know, he founded Overstock. And he gave this speech uh, after, you know, at January 6th. And it was a very philosophical speech. And then I found out, you know, he has a PhD in philosophy and I really loved the speech. And I was like, I really want to have a conversation, a podcast um, where we go kind of into the philosophical roots of how we've gotten to where we are today. And uh, so I didn't have a chance to really talk to him then, but then I went to a Davith Mandates rally in DC. Uh, I think it was, it was in February. So I guess maybe six months later and uh or no no i don't know i'd have to look at the timeline but it was either six months or a year later i was at a defeat mandates rally and he was there and he told me i looked familiar and i was like no uh you don't know me but i might look familiar because i was standing you know kind of front row when you were giving the speech on january 6th and i really want to talk to you i want to do a podcast and uh so yeah, without the long sort of details of all this but this kind of thing happened repeatedly like i ran into him several times and uh, he would be like, I know you. <laughs> and I'm like, no, but you owe me a podcast. We need to do a podcast. And uh, so this last time that I had run into him short, like a shortly before, it was a few weeks before the event. This time he pointed out, he's like, I know you. <laughs> and he was like, and I think I owe you an interview. And I said, yes, you do. <laughs> and so we scheduled one for uh, the next day. And uh, it was at the Reawaken America tour. And uh, midway through the conversation you know that we realized there was a lot to talk about and he had reached out later saying that he wanted to continue the conversation that um you know yeah so we ended up uh having breakfast the next day uh with my fiance and 
his friend was with us and yeah so i had at the end of this uh i had mentioned the whole thing with cause fest and uh told him that i was kind of freaking out because we were getting down to the wire and uh yeah he said well if there's anything i can do to help then let me know he was really excited about it and really loves the idea. You know, what, what we talked about, we just very much on the same wavelength about getting, uh, you know, patriot groups to come together. And, you know, of course, like if you read Fifth Generation Warfare, it's all about, you know, like local action leads to, uh, you know, federal impact. And so the, the idea of getting these groups together and building grassroots communities, which is why we're taking it on tour, because that's the whole point, is to build these local communities and for people to be able to find, you know, their tribe, quote unquote, so to speak, uh, but really just to build the network of a community that has been stripped from us in so many ways, uh, I think, by design. So, yeah. And I just really appreciate the community that everyone there in the green room had just was was charged with this higher purpose. And you have infinite energy when you're doing the right thing, the moral thing. And I feel like everyone in the green room was on the same um, thing. I, I I was in Houston all weekend. I had three, four shows at the secret group. I love that place. There was one comic who got in the green room and said the following for an unpaid guest spot well my manager um you know got me a hotel boy i'm so busy unpaid guest spot um oh uh not on the not on the poster uh showed up late oh um yeah i don't need that much time everyone on the poster 10 minutes i i don't need that much time yeah i don't know uh i just my manager got me a hotel um so yeah i'll just do like 15. And then after they the performance in the green room like oh yeah uh so what kind of good food options are there Oh, okay. So I'll, oh, and then one person was like, well, there's an expensive ramen place. Oh, I'll Uber to the expensive ramen and then I'll Uber to the uh, hotel that my manager got me. Unpaid guest spot. The, wow. sec all, the whole car ride home, I was like, I, I don't fuck with these people. All this person did was come in late. They douche the entire, they bump everybody down 15 minutes. And then all they can do is status brag the whole time. I go, I'll never going to help that person in a hundred years. I don't care. If he was yeah. doing, I would have more respect for him if he was on the poster and slammed heroin and did 10 minutes and mind, mind his fucking business. I would have more respect for that. But no, he shows up late, bumps everybody, and all he can do is talk about managers, hotels, and Ubering to sushi for an unpaid guest spot. Shut the fuck up. But yeah, there was, <laughs> it was just narcissism, social yeah. status, energy. There was none of that amongst all the people who showed up to Rebel Soul. Unbelievable. You know, it's so funny. Um, that was kind of one of the things, uh, like, uh, my fiance really prayed for the sermon. Like, let, you know, the, the people who are really for the cause reveal themselves and the people who really aren't, you know, fall by the wayside and reveal themselves as well. And that was just amazing. The people who were there were the people who were really, like, pun intended, committed to the cause. And it was just... It was, it was really, really incredible to see. It was very special, the energy in the room. So, yeah, I'm so grateful. The talent was all just, like, way superseded any of my expectations. The speeches were just phenomenal. Um, yeah, and everybody just really worked together and collaborated. It was it was beautiful. So, um. Um, One thing I got from Patrick Byrne's speech that I think about all the time is um, freedom requires morality to yeah. function communism requires dependence on a central government 
So the, the at the end of the rainbow of conservative politics, you have to be moral. Yes. I, I always I think that Texas really rubs me the wrong way in one way where they have they get the whole rugged individualism part. But that becomes a narcissism and a selfishness where nobody uses their fucking blinker. And I've said this on my podcast before. If you don't use your blinker and I was a sheriff, I would pull you over and shoot you dead. I don't care if there's kids in the car. Use your fucking blinkers. It's free. And it shouldn't be a legal thing. That should just be like common sense and politeness. And yeah, things run smoother. It shows the mentality of selfishness where I don't want to tip them off. And I see people that that use their blinkers as though they're going to go down an exit lane just to douche at the last minute to cut the line because of unbridled narcissism and selfishness. And so a, a, a conservative, a um a capitalist right-wing society cannot function when at the ground level, people don't even use their fucking blinkers. It requires, so then nobody has healthcare ambulances show up to car wrecks from people not using their fucking blinkers for avoidable narcissistic induced injuries. And then, Oh, I'm a victim because I don't have healthcare. So, but on the flip side of that socialism, a, a friend of mine explained that in a French friend of mine explained that, a lot of the people could not function without daddy government bailing them out from their own lack of personal responsibility. So Mm -hmm. they become dependent. Even when they have kids, France sends a nanny into their house to do their own fucking laundry. When we have laundry machines in modern society and we don't have to take clothes down to the fucking river and beat them with a fucking stick. But Uh the the French people are so dependent, they send a nanny to everybody's... uh, I'm not saying that's bad, but that is also the nanny state who can report you to the government if you are a naughty French person. So this is what I think about all the time. Can't is. A modern society with porno on everyone's phone and, oh, I don't like my wife, swipe, 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 you know what I mean, on a Tinder app. Can can morality function in a modern society with all the distractions? Well, I have so much to say to all of that. But first, I want to mention, um, Patrick actually just released an article. It is uh, like 85 pages. It's not a short read, but I highly recommend you were talking about fairness <laughs> and uh, if anybody questioned the level and the extent and the depth of corruption in our government and in the deep state apparatus, uh, this is like very detailed uh, accounts of the level and extent of corruption that has occurred that he is firsthand witness uh, and then he was involved with. So I highly recommend reading that article. Um, I, he had just sent it to me and it's it's fantastic. It's, again, not a short read, and it's pretty extensive, but I do recommend that. There's definitely not fairness. There's definitely not morality. Uh, And who was it that uh, said, I think it was Jefferson, who said, you know, the Constitution can only work for uh, a moral people. And the founding fathers really knew that in order to, you know, you you talk about how his speech kind of uh, outlined the the two sides, which honestly, I, I do think there is a bit of, uh, there's kind of a third element there, because I do think that these sides were designed to create dialectical, um, to create dialectics, essentially. And Washington, George Washington talked about it. He actually talked about it in his farewell speech. He talked about how parties, he was very against parties because he parties allowed for infiltration of uh, foreign invaders uh, because, the, and they would also create this problem, essentially he didn't use the word dialectic, but that, that's what they would do. They're designed to create these warring factions and which makes people much more vulnerable and susceptible to uh, foreign infiltration and to enemies uh, co-opting. 
So, but the one thing they did know was that you can't have like what they call like Austrian school economics and free market trade without having it, the counterbalance of morality. And that would be, you know, they, they believe that was the Judeo Christian uh, principles, not necessarily that you had to be a Christian or a Jew, but that it was those founding principles and that provided the morality, which is why uh, so much of that was embedded in the founding documents as the counterbalance to the corruption that would run amok if you really had just true free market, then you don't have a counterbalance to the greed. But of course, you have these different systems, you know, like there's a essentially it was like Smith against Marx and Hayek uh, against Maynard Keynes. And all of them are predicated on Mandeville. Mandeville was uh, very much like a, you know, Luciferian principles of uh, virtue through sin. And so that's where we get this idea from capitalism that, you know, greed is good because it incentivizes people to work hard. You know, of course, you have the opposite where, uh, you know, the socialists are are telling you, don't worry, we'll have a top down structure and then everybody's taken care of. And the truth is really neither one is ideal, you know, neither one. And both of them have been uh they they've been promulgated in extreme forms in order to create this uh you know dialectic where people are fighting one against the other where they have this false managed dialectic and they think they can only choose one or the other ultimately i i think that they want to swoop in with their quote unquote solution which is the technocracy and many of the elite texts talk about this i mean brzezinski talks about it kissinger talks about it um you know i think russell bertrand russell talks about it um even i would say uh well, i'm blanking on his name but the uh existential oh Foucault he talks about it in terms of the scientific uh the scientism takeover so well let me bring us down to earth I have a uh <clears throat> speaking about morality and uh order I have an ex-girlfriend ex-girlfriend who cheated on me okay fair play but now this person constantly tries to seduce me to extort me for resources and every time I do a favor for her she uh, she manufactures a method in which I owe her money for the favor I've done for her. So I try to explain to her um okay if I go out with my guy friends we split the bill at Pluckers watching a, a combat sports event. Okay? We you get your beer and chicken wings, I'll get my beer and chicken wings at separate tabs, right? So um my cheating ex-girlfriend now trying to convert this person into my friend um, we're going to split the bill because that's how my homies and I operate. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so there, if there's no morality, like they still want the benefit without the morality. And I'm sorry, mm-hmm. in a in a system of that we're in now, that that's not the, the case. That's not how it works, sugar bear. Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, the morality, I think they're really trying to, they breed this lack of morality, though, through the dehumanization, right? When you're talking about, like, for instance, during the COVID, where they have atomized people and they put masks on people, these, these are just a couple of examples. But the further dehumanized people become, the more removed they are from their sense of empathy uh, and compassion, then the lower the morality scale becomes. So that it increases the ability for people to behave in this kind of just feckless, corrupt. Yeah. And I really think that polyamory is being ruled by your whims. I'm a very monogamous person. I'm single, but I'm ruled only by my will. I am not ruled by my whims because I have a cerebral cortex that's intact and works. (laughs) 
Um, when you have a shitty cerebral cortex, they also call that ADHD. And then you're ruled by your whims. Yes. Well, and they've, they've created ADHD in many ways. I mean, with the, uh, you know, hyper, we're, we're in the instant gratification culture where everything is at your fingertips and people aren't capable of reading more than 140 characters at once. And uh, everything is just, uh, it's, it's stimulation overload. And, and of course, then you have all the toxins, right? The things like Red Lake 40 and uh, all the injections. And I'm not just talking about the recent ones, but uh, there's been proven links between all these different pharmaceuticals and them causing ADHD. So uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing. I mean, you just look at like the Amish community and they've actually been doing studies with the Amish for decades. They haven't released them, but the decades and decades, they have the data and they show that they don't have all of these ailments um, and they, they just don't exist. They won't release them because then people would wonder why. And then you could look at what do they do differently than what they're doing for the rest of society? Hmm. Yeah. So that's a, uh, but yeah, I think that you, that's the polyamory culture is definitely being pushed also. It's become very trendy. Um, it's being a, uh, and I think that is part of the, certainly it's a degradation of morality in the culture, but I think it's also part of the uh, depopulation and uh, transhuman agenda. Yeah, because you know what? how you make a good cerebral cortex? A man and wife, both taking oh. care of the kids. That's good. how you have a good cerebral cortex. There's no other way to say it. From the ages of zero to 25, your cerebral cortex grows. The cerebral cortex is your ability to delay gratification, period. Yeah. There's other parts of your brain, analytical, creative. The yeah. cerebral cortex is the ability to delay gratification. So if daddy or mommy has a new lover every every time they get uh, uh, their juices flowing on somebody else because they're dumb, um, then the kid suffers because there's new creepy weirdos in the fucking house all the time when their math homework is due tomorrow. Jesus yeah. Christ. Now, I was raised Catholic and I didn't even know that that was important until I enter, you know, my adult life. And I go, no, no, no. Here's how it works. It goes dating, girlfriend, fiance, wife, period. And if at any any test of those relationships, there's infidelity, I'm like, bye, Felicia. Goodbye. No, you know what I mean? Why? I already know what you are. So why am I going to put a ring on that? Right. I already know what you are. Yeah. No, I definitely can't disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going through a loop of shame right now. What's your uh, utopia, Courtney Turner? What is your utopia? Is it, are you a Marxist socialist? What do you think? An artist commune of people hugging each other at, at the Rebels for Cause Green Room? What What do you think? What's the best business model for humanity? Uh, well, I don't really believe utopia exists. Uh um, there, there may be some sort of eternal utopia, depending on your worldview, uh, that is not in this realm, but I don't think here on earth that we're going to experience utopia. A good business model, though, for humanity, I, I would really like to see a return to a, a, a humanity that returns to more self-sustainability. I, I call it like the middleman culture, the, the culture that we're currently immersed, uh, where, everything's outsourced to a middleman. So we're so far removed from our basic uh, 
capabilities for survival, like literally just for survival. Most of us, and this is not to say everyone, because I am seeing a lot of people uh, start to uh, take interest in this sort of thing and uh, build these types of skills and resources. But most people don't know at all if they were, if all the grocery stores were to be shut down, they would have no clue how to provide food for themselves. You know, most people, if, you know, they're, uh, if their homes were taken from them, you know, you own nothing, you'll be happy. And uh, this is the thing we don't, people even, even people who own, think, quote unquote, they own property in the United States, they really don't own their property because they pay property taxes. What happens if you default on your property taxes? You, they put a lien and the government eventually seizes your supposed property that you own. So that doesn't sound like ownership. That sounds like you pay rent to the government. So I, I bring this up just to say that, you know, if they didn't have a home and because it was seized from them because they don't technically own it, most people wouldn't know how to provide shelter for themselves. These are just very, very basic things. So I would like to see some sort of, uh, you know, combination of the great technology that we have. I do think the technology can be, util it's a tool, it's I think technology itself is inherently neutral. It can be used to do tremendously wonderful things. And it'd be great to see the advanced technology that we experience day-to-day -day life, but coupled with, you know, more self-sustainability, uh, less uh, dependence on uh, government, not just government, but like, you know, big mega corporation systems that essentially we live in a People like to think we live in a capitalist society, but I mean, in many ways, we've really already entered this, uh, you know, corporatocracy, fascist state. So I would like to see a removal, more pulling away from that. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I live in like probably the lowest income apartment possible in Austin, Texas. And I, it's, they lie to me all the time. It's about 30 or 40% occupied. They always say it's 95% occupied. Course. No, it's Emergency not. And desirability. <laughs> no, it's not. They just lie to my face every day. And so to to because they want to push the rent up with the market value because the yeah. new condo, the new uh, apartment complex next door charges, you know, 40% more, but it's a brand new build. So they're like, well, we are giving you a deal based on the market capital. Okay. The, mm -hmm. They would be incredibly successful if they converted this apartment to condos the only difference they wouldn't have to move a brick the only thing it would be is paperwork they would all of a sudden be flushed with all this cash and they say that they're you know the the previous manager lost money so they're in debt okay here's how you clear all the debt in a year you yeah. convert them to condos pay a small hoa fee for the um maintenance guys because there are nice maintenance guys and whatever and i'm friends with those and those, those guys i have no beef with um but a small hoa fee you clear all your debt but but they're too short-sighted and greedy. They all have shitty cerebral cortexes, so they can't, because of trauma, childhood trauma and neglect, so they can't think of a 10-year plan of paying off their debt in year one and year two have a sustainable uh, thing where everyone has their own property and they're, they're not in despair all the time because they're building to at least pay off their thing that they can sell at the end of the term, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see, I actually just had somebody on uh, my podcast, we were talking about this, how you instantly see the demise of a, uh, whether it be a town, a city, when they start taking all of the space to put in apartment buildings, not condos, but apartments. That's, you know, when, you know, things are really starting to go downhill. 
and they they do because they have so much more control right this it's the and that's what cities are all about the track stack and pack that's that's what i call them track stack and pack. <laughs> and it creates yeah. this and it also reinforces the whole lie of their uh overpopulation narrative because now you're all congested and crammed on top of each other and nobody owns anything so and they're they're building like crazy all of these apartments and condos and townhouses and high rate like, uh, like i would just say condos and townhouses well it's still uh you know reinforcing that narrative it's a little bit different because people have much more control and they have a sense of even if it's you know you know, cannot complete ownership, but they have more of a, a sense of ownership and then therefore personal responsibility over an agency over their space. Sure. But the, in the high rises downtown in Austin that are going to be like one point four million dollars each and you live on the 50th floor and then to get to the elevator down to your car in the garage that you have to walk for. That's, a, you know, so you own something that's one point four million dollars. They flood, um, you know. 500 units on the same day when they turn the key to open the place. And I just think it's like, they're all just pretending it's like a real market is, have you sold any of those? No. So maybe instead of 1.4 million, they're worth a 300,000, but they would rather so greedy, these wall street pieces of shit people Mm -hmm. that I've met in my life that they um, are like, no, 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 it's 1.2 because our debt is this and my overhead's this and I only eat steak and lobster. And so, and I have an ex-wife and another ex-wife. I'm also, you know what I mean? So everything is a pyramid of debt because Wall Street people are, have Adderall all the time because they all have ADHD because they're all miserable. And when they, uh, you know, go to the strip club, they do cocaine because they're all pieces of immoral shit. Anyway. Yeah, well, that pretty much summed that up. Yeah. Well, the the inception of Wall Street is uh, predicated on that. I mean, it's a fiat system that's a total scam that's, you know, to sell you the lie of debt. Yeah. And uh, it all all began uh, when we talk about conspiracy theories, like it literally was a conspiracy on Jekyll Island. That's literally how the Federal Reserve was created. So, yeah. Top down. (laughs) When the top is fair and doesn't lie, then the whole society. I I don't I'm there's different business models that are interesting for philosophy. There's liars and there's truth tellers and there's nothing in between. Mm. Um, I don't think any top down model, though, I, I'm not someone who's in favor of because it's still like a you're still averting your authority to somebody else. And you're, you know, you're you're stripping yourself. You're basically like abdicating your own authority, sense of authority over yourself. And I think that that's a that, that's never a good paradigm. I think we'd be a much better society just as a whole humanity would be a much better. um, I I think we would just be much more evolved if people had a sense of personal agency and taking personal responsibility. Uh, That doesn't mean that they can do everything, but that's what you have communities for. But this idea that you have to give over your power and your sense of authority to somebody else. How does somebody else know better how you should live your life than you do? And why does somebody else know better? Like, why do we even, why do we even create systems where that exists? I know better. I know better. You should use your blinkers. That's better (laughs) than not using your blinkers. You should stop at red lights. That's not better. It's not like, how should you know what's better or worse? No, it's better to stop at stop signs and it's garbage not to. It's better to use your blinkers and it's garbage not to. Um, there, there's yeah, in date- LA, they don't believe in blinkers. I'm kind of convinced that everybody has just disabled their blinkers. Nobody ever used them. Yeah. There's dating, girlfriend, <laughs> fiance, 
<laughs> a wife and any level of cheating is garbage. That's better, not worse. And the reason for this is the cerebral cortex of society. Mm -hmm. That's why I would even argue that if you took out these labels, like these stages, you know, if you make a commitment to somebody, regardless of the label that they're just implied in, if you want to call it a social contract, should be that there is a basic morality, because otherwise there is no contract, there is no agreement. So yeah, that morality should just exist. There shouldn't have to be a stage for when these different levels of morality exist. You shouldn't actually have a have to have like you know, even there shouldn't have to be a law saying that you, you need to use your blinker, right? People should just know, hey, I want to signal, I'm going to look both ways and make sure that I can go forth. But instead, what do people do? People will like speed up to cut you off and then uh, and slow down as soon as they get in front of you. I mean, this is just, if you even just didn't have any laws at all, and there was just jungle law, just by the sheer nature of somebody's desire to be, to survive, you would think they would you would figure these things out. There's just like risk homeostasis. But if and the, people would actually be much more polite and respectful and and conduct themselves with higher morality as a result. But that goes to show that they don't feel like that anyone should. If nobody shows you love, you will be selfish. You have to be shown what love is in order to love back and to love your neighbor. So if everyone thinks that, oh, well, everyone's I'm being scammed. And so I'm in it for myself. Then you don't use your blinker. But while you were talking about the stages and morality, you were showcasing a lovely ring. What, what is that? That's a that's a nice little rock piece you got oh, going on. Thank you. Social contracts. Wowie. Wow. <laughs> thank you. I met your fiance or husband. Great guy. Incredible. Yeah. I, I agree. <laughs> Got me from the airport, even though there was a delay flight and I missed my connection and sweetheart and salt of the earth. What have we learned from our first um, uh, rebels for a cause? What have we learned? What can we tweak better as we oh, take this we dog and pony show? Learned, we learned a lot. So I, I will say this. We are very, very grateful. It was a, a huge leap of faith. Um, you know, this was a massive, massive undertaking. And we, we really just believed that it was so important and needed to be done that, that we were going to continue to go forth and make it happen. Uh, and we really did believe that it would come together. But we had no money until the last week, the week right before. <laughs> so like the week of was when we had any money to do anything. Uh, and it, we did have a sponsor come through. We're really, really grateful for that. Um, but that meant that, you know, things like just even the just even booking the space, like getting everybody, knowing who was going to be able to be there or not be there because we had to book flights and hotels and all of that uh, couldn't happen until that week. And that definitely was really, really challenging. Uh, we didn't have the organization that I and the infrastructure that I would have liked. So, But there was no way you can't even hire a stage manager three days before, right? What are you going to tell them to do? So I, I think for the next one, we're looking to lay things out very differently. Uh, we are looking to, you know, there might be some of uh, a repeat in terms of talent and uh, uh, speakers, but we're really going to try and pull much more from the local area because that is the whole point is to build the local communities. And unless we get really, you know, blessed with a bunch of sponsors or donations where we can fly everybody back in, um, you know, we just don't have the resources to do that. So what we are looking to do, though, this time is we'll lay out the schedule in much more uh, structured uh, ahead of time. So we're we're looking to make like 
you know, one day the, the concert with a lot of the entertainment acts and maybe some uh, film showcases, uh, the, the comedy, the music, and do that one day. So if people wanted to buy a ticket specifically for just that, they could. And then have another day. Uh, we're thinking the Saturday night this time will be some of the bigger name uh, music and uh, uh, entertainment acts and then have the speakers during the day on uh, and panels. To, so it'll be divided up. So the people, if they if they want to buy a ticket for the whole weekend, they can. Awesome, please do. Uh, but this way, they'll have a kind of a format and know if they wanted to buy a ticket for something more specific versus the other. The other thing we're going to do differently is there weren't breaks because we just had so much to cram into such a short time. So we're but we're going to do like meal breaks mostly to encourage the networking, the collaboration, which happened anyway, which was awesome. But this way, people will have time uh, if they are coming in from out of town, if they don't know each other to spend that time in between to reflect on what they've watched and witnessed and uh, the entertainment that they've enjoyed and get to meet each other and build those communities. So so those are some of the things there. There was a lot of things that we definitely uh, learned, but I think that for the first one, I'm, you know, it happened, which was just amazing. So, yeah. What a pleasure it was to be a part of it. My, what, my big note, what is this? And I don't, I, you know, I, it's, I even feel weird saying this out loud Oops. because you show me such incredible love and support and hospitality, but the chairs. Now I know you got the the venue last minute and so you had to set up folding chairs. But when you have a conference that's like 8 hours long uh per day every day, you know what I mean? Um folding chairs is just not an option for someone like me. I got some back issues, you know. And um for example, I went to see a UFO conference when I was an undergrad at the New School when I was living in Jersey City, New Jersey, and it was at the Lowe's Theater in Journal Square. And that's like a 200-year-old theater, but it had nice, comfy uh, theater chairs that were nice and cushy. And so I stayed for six hours at this UFO conference because it was easy. To, it was dollar popcorn at the front. It was easy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's my, if if you get a that, theater. That so this is what I will say to that. Chairs apparently are incredibly expensive. And we were really, really blessed that we actually had somebody donate the chairs. Um so we are very, very thank thankful to Peanut, who uh, he he does tents and he's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, he donated the chair. So that was going to be a massive expense. And it was really funny because I was getting a lot of like kind of, you know, saying it was a big leap of faith and we're really just kind of hoping and praying this is all going to come together. And uh, I had a vision that uh, somebody was going to donate the chairs and it, that day uh, it did happen my fiance had spoken to him he was like yeah I'm gonna you know donate the chairs to your event so that saved us a lot of money I am really sorry to hear they were not comfortable though and if we can do better next time we will <laughs> but if anybody wants to donate and sponsor really comfortable chairs please I'm yeah. just saying work <laughs> harder work work smarter not harder and if you get mm -hmm. a theater that's got a built-in uh, sound system and this and that then it's all you know the what theaters, I mean. Yeah, theaters are yeah. If if we can find something that we can, uh, you know, that we can make work and that we can afford, absolutely, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, that's what I'm just saying. We also it... needed the other limitation for us was I do the aerial right, so we need something that has at least a 14 foot, uh, I think 15 because the rig is 14 feet, so I needed something that accommodated that. So. <laughs>
By the way, I saw we're Twitter friends now. You shared yeah. um, a picture of yourself in a bikini. Now, I you have a fiance, this weird territory. You're shredded, Courtney Turner. And when I was watching you, your aerial performance, where let's just say what it is. There's like two hanging silk sheets that loop mm -hmm. at the bottom and you like spin up it and spin down it. I, if I tried this, I would be decapitated or hang myself within about two minutes. You, the the the, the skill at which you were operating and the strength, I was like, God damn, this is impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I did the second night. Very few people saw it, but I did do uh, one on hoop. It's like a, it's called pocket lira. And uh, yeah, I did that routine. So did that expand your consciousness when you were living in the shallow hollow halls of hollywood with fake people that are getting their frappa macchino to their vegan douchebag whatever and just all these losers um social climbing over each other putting each other's boot in each other's mouths to climb up a pyramid of hollywood tinseltown horseshit how did how did that aerial performing save your life save your soul I, I don't know if it saved my soul, but it, uh -huh. it definitely really did. Uh, it definitely was a great creative outlet when I was not acting anymore. So uh, in that regard, I would say definitely. I mean, I think any physical uh, kind of pursuit, just it, you know, a lot of people think, and this is not to say that there, you know, there aren't the these types. There's certainly a lot of really vain, shallow people in the fitness industry as well. But I think the thing about fitness is that, it's I, I always use the analogy of like a, an Olympic athlete. It doesn't matter how talented and how gifted they are. They're never going to get the Olympics, but to the Olympics by sitting on their butt all day. Like it's just not, you know, you're not going to sit and watch television and become an Olympic athlete. It's just not going to happen. So um, they have to put the work in and they know that. And this goes not, I'm not condoning like, you know, drugs or anything like that, but even, you know, like they're certainly in the, uh, you know, bodybuilding world. A lot of the people do take drugs and, even those like in sports enhancement drugs that they take don't do the work for them. They even they have to put the work in. Uh, and I I just use this analogy to bring up the point that I think it teaches people something about hard work, failure, discipline, uh, setting goals. And so I think any kind of physical pursuit teaches you that. I mean, you don't on day one you're you're just not going to master a routine even the most proficient aerial acrobatic artist is not going to just look at a routine once and you know hop up there and make it flawless so you need to if they've never done aerial before you know if they if even a proficient one still needs to work at it but certainly if you've never done it before it takes it takes work it takes a uh, you know effort and uh, time and energy so I think in that regard, sure, it may have uh, helped me. It was definitely an escape and an outlet. And it was a creative artistic performance for me when I, I, you know, I took a break from the acting world. I, I really love acting as an art and I really hate the industry with the passion. <laughs> um, so, and I came from the theater world where, you know, I was in New York and I had a theater company and I was doing a lot of uh, live theater, which I really, really loved. Uh, I don't think I was, my talents seem to lend themselves much more to film. I'm better at it, um, but I actually really enjoy theater much more. And the theater world is, you know, it's got its challenges too, but it's very different than film and Hollywood. It's definitely different. And the the people are different. The mindset is different. So, yeah. But when I left that, it was great to have the aerial as a artistic outlet. Yeah.
I love stand-up comedy and um, I hate people that uh, humble brag constantly to douche you for power boners. Um, so you told me a story about um, reading, meeting Robert Malone and uh, the inventor of the mRNA technology. And yes. you told me uh, an ominous story. Um, it was being interrupted by one of the other people in the car. I forget who. Oh, yeah, Matt Baker. But you said um, an interesting story. Um mm -hmm you know, challenging the very fabric of if viruses are real or not. And there was there was a very interesting speaker that you had uh, on this topic of if viruses are real at all, when he went through the mm -hmm. actual um, tests that were done to prove the existence of viruses and how they were photographed, these little uh, particles, these little uh, things. And mm -hmm. um, but they were monkey kidneys mixed with this, mixed with that, mixed with that sort of. It sounds like a little. Well, they put in an eye newt and then uh, drag uh, the fur from a lion, and then they put in the. And it's like that's not science. It sounds more like witchcraft. And then they photographed like and Frankenstein stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then they've never proved that those particles that they film in a beaker have anything to do with actual symptoms, symptomology. Well, they've and never proven contagion. They, they've, they've actually really tried. They've, they've extensively tried to prove contagion. Um, and essentially, they finally concluded after maiming monkey brains <laughs> and then injecting, you know, like a coagulate of material into these monkey brains that when they felt ill, oh, look, we've proven contagion. That doesn't prove contagion. Yeah. I mean, if you maim a brain, they're probably not going to feel so great. <laughs> like that's not, they, they might get sick. <laughs> so that, that doesn't prove contagion at all. They, and that, that is one thing they really have tried to prove and they actually have not proven. So, yeah. I mean, if you, if you liquidize strawberries and shoot them into someone's brain, they're probably going to get sick because their strawberries are meant to be et, not shot into your brain. And so, well, yeah, and this is the same thing about uh, I, I don't know what platforms are on, so I don't know what words I can use, but we'll, we'll just say injection. Hey, let it fly. Okay. I've been cursing so, like a yeah. sailor the whole time. <laughs> so, yeah, like uh, with vaccines, with traditional vaccines, you know, you look at the exponential increase uh, in allergies, food allergies. And one of the reasons for this, you look at ingredient like number uh, 67 in uh, vaccines is peanut and one of the top, I think it's the top five ingredients is eggs. And those are very, very common allergies. And uh, part of the reason for that is because they inject it intravenously. So what happens? Your body then has a, a trauma response to a foreign entity because your body is designed to digest and then metabolize these foods, but it's not meant to be shot intravenously into your bloodstream. And so it has a trauma response to a protective mechanism in order to uh, buffer against this foreign agent that has now entered your bloodstream. And then what happens the first time you know, you eat it, although we are, we do have digestive system designed to process these things. It now has a, a response because it remembers it's a histamine response. It remembers, oh, wait, this was a foreign agent that we had to protect ourselves from previously. Uh, and that's part of the reason we see such an increase in uh, food allergies. So. So what happened? You get off the escalator. Dr. Robert Malone is there. Set the scene. Uh, set the scene for this <laughs> and like, scene so he like pointed up this the stairs like at me and he was like be he was like beware of that woman don't underestimate her and uh, I was kind of like bewildered I guess a friend of mine was there also and had seen the episode I did with him and then uh told him 
uh, you know, that I was coming. And uh, then he sees me and he made this comment like, he's like, no, I'm serious. He was like, you know, she's really un she's really unassuming, but she she looks like a tiny little thing, but she's really an intellectual giant who gave me a run for my money. And I kind of looked at him bewildered and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, no, really, you challenged me. And, uh, you know, he turns to them. He's like, I I'm not kidding. Like, don't underestimate her. She has an IQ over 140. And I, I asked him, I said, I don't know how I challenged you. I really, I mean, I thought it was a very benevolent interview, quite honestly. Uh, we went through a lot of his origin story um, and just the history, because I really think he's been, you know, exploited through academia. I think he's been exploited by the MIC as well. Um, I think he would argue that he's been exploited. I don't think he will admit the latter part, but definitely uh, the the former and uh, that was really kind of what we went through. So I don't really know where it is that he feels I challenged him, except that we got to the end where uh, <laughs> of the podcast and he looks up and he kind of tells me that he needs to go, that it's two o'clock and uh, he has another interview. And so he said, but this is very interesting. Nobody's asked me questions in this arena before. And so, uh, you know, let's definitely do a part two. And I've tried to follow up several times. We have not done the part two. And at that meeting, when I saw him at that time, I said to him, so, hey, about the part two, I, I see you're doing a book that's actually around that topic. So, you know, maybe that would be a great time. And he said, well, I've been really busy. And uh, I said, yeah, no, I know. I mean, not now, but maybe then. And he said, well, you'll have to talk to the gatekeeper. He points to his wife. And I said, yes, I've emailed both of you. You know, I'd love to follow up. And uh, so anyhow, uh, he said, uh, you, you know, I was like, he said that, you know, follow up with her. And uh, I, I said that I would. And I said, but I hadn't heard from either of them. And uh, that maybe, you know, when, when the book comes out, we'll we'll do a follow up on that topic. And he was like, yeah, I just need to write the book. And I mean, this was a while ago. <laughs> I said, my, I was like, minor, he said, minor details. I just need to write the book. And I said, I'm, well, I'm sure that'll happen. And that would be a great time to follow up. So, but yeah, so that's, uh, that, that was the, the story. <laughs> well, every gatekeeper needs a key master. You know, maybe you just got to get in with the, the, the hidden signs, the hidden history. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I really think that the, the controllers, their favorite enemy is one that doesn't exist. The mm. very thing to fear is fear itself. War right. on terror, climate change, viruses, Pokemon Go. You need yeah. something out there that's not real. Santa Claus, you know. But see, now all of these things, uh, well, I, I won't say all because we don't have it. We don't have definitive proof of all of them. But a lot of them we know were manufactured, right? Pokemon Go we know it was designed for surveillance, right? It was a way to lure people into uh, basically like a opt-in for surveillance. So we know that was Pokemon Go. Uh, whether the debate about viruses itself aside, we know that a lot of the fear-mongering around COVID was not necessary. And that was designed to uh, enforce these control mechanisms that and measures that they did with all the mandates, right? The lockdowns. Uh, I mean, we can go through the list, but a lot of it was manufactured. <laughs> yeah, morality. Promulgating fear, which is the best way to control people through fear. Freedom requires morality to function. Mm -hmm. And when you're being coerced into nonsense all the time by the 
the government and the CNN Teletube uh, constantly, the propaganda machine, you know. Um, <sighs> okay. Yeah, so, I, so I don't know if you, the, the, the virus uh, issue, I, so speaking of that, Alex Zach is doing the end of COVID and a lot of the, he has 90 uh, speakers and, you know, uh, a lecture series that they're doing. And a, a huge component of that is to end what he believes is a lie of virology. Um, and so, yeah, I think for people who have questions around that, what, regardless of what they believe or what they you know, which story, which narrative they believe to be true. I think it'd be interesting for people to watch that. No, and I, I met a virology doctor who was 79 years old. I said this on my last podcast, who said, um, now she believed in viruses, but her solution was everyone make out with each other, period. Mm -hmm. Do, well, everyone's going to get it anyway. The Let's thing all... about viruses that I think is just interesting is that, you know, we're talking about sub-microscopic particles and Therefore, they cannot be seen and they really can't be proven. <laughs> and so they're a theoretic model. Now, that model may be accurate. I I, I don't know for sure. I, I know people are very passionate on both sides of the aisle, but I personally don't know. It's a theoretical model. But I just think it's very interesting that people are so convinced that they are right about something that is a theoretical model. This is where, you know, the, the foundations of science have been completely uh, eviscerated because the scientific method really was that you put forth a hypothesis, then you test it. And the whole, it, the whole thing is predicated on the notion that nothing can be proven, right? You uphold a model until it's disproven. But the whole point is that you keep testing to see if the, the model still holds up. But now we live in the world where, you know, just because something, a theoretical model has been in existence for a long period of time and has been, I would argue, indoctrinated in inculcate through inculcation uh, in the education system uh, or just through permeated through culture that now we don't question it. We don't, you know, challenge it. We don't even investigate it because, well, this is the model we've had for a long time. Therefore it must be true. That's not science. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm science. Um, quote, Dr. Fauci. Um, but, you know, I just think our immune system fights something. And mm -hmm. if you want to call that terrorism, climate change, bacteria or whatever, I mean, to me, pneumonia is when, you know, you kind of push your body to the limit with a com com compromised immune system, like you, you're in awfully... Mm -hmm like you're in sleeting rain for too long or, you know, yeah. your body kind of has to fight that for long and, and has to recover your, your immune system fights something. Um, well, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, pneumonia theoretically is bacteria, which is a different conversation. Although there are people who don't think, you know, that the narrative around bacteria is accurate either, but that is a different conversation. But yes, I would definitely say that I don't think any of us could deny people do get ill and that, you know, there's, there's detoxing and there's all sorts of symptoms that occur uh, when people are, uh, you know, under stress or in compromised environments or exposed to toxins. And yeah, I don't think anybody denies that. So, and as far as the climate change, I mean, we know that that was a false narrative that was designed intentionally to uh, corral people against to support an agenda. I mean, they admitted it. It was a, the, they, they said that the enemy of humanity was man uh, in the limits to growth document. And in there, that was the Club of Rome who wrote it. And then in 1992, they did the Global Reformation document and they admitted that that was uh, 
a lie and it was propaganda created in order to get people to uh, rally behind this narrative that they knew people wouldn't because there was no actual science behind it. Um, but yeah. Personal responsibility, but pollution is real. And you know who pollutes? Well, big corporations, the military industrial complex and homeless people. Homeless yeah. people pollute because they nobody's taking care of them. So what, what does it matter if a water bottle that they were gifted from a car window ends up in a river? What Nobody takes care of them. Personal responsibility. Morality is required for society to function. So when people are on the street and they die of a heroin overdose in their tent, all, all their tent gear goes everywhere in, in the woods and all homelessness makes pollution more efficiently. But my apartment that houses people lies to my face that they're 95% occupant because they won't turn it into condos because of short-sighted greed, because everybody is garbage. Um, why did you escape Hollywood? Mm, uh why did i leave uh la like physically yes. leave? yeah um oh it was awful but it, it, I, it was a long time coming definitely but then in 2020 when everybody was all masked up uh so for those who are not familiar with my personal story my mom was sick during first trimester pregnancy and it rendered me with several uh health and medical complications uh, not limited to but including i'm hearing impaired I actually didn't get hearing aids till I was almost six years old because I learned how to speak by reading lips. I'm blind in one eye. I had heart surgery when I was a year old. I was born with hypotonic limbs, blind graphic motor impairment, asymmetrical bone development, stunted growth. They basically told my mom the best she could hope was to find a nice institution for me to spend my life. I, I share this story because fortunately that, that was not the case, but that that is what they told her. I share the story because with the 2020 and everybody being masked up, I didn't realize how much I still depend on the nonverbal cues and lip reading for clarity of speech until all the coping mechanisms with which I spent my life developing had been then stripped for me by uh, the math mandates. And so everybody's all masked up and I really couldn't communicate with people because although I could hear with my hearing aids, I didn't have clarity of speech. And I just felt incredibly depressed, incredibly isolated, uh, anxious it was just a really really challenging time for me and it did not look like it was going to get any better uh this was actually how i started my podcast because people suggested i start a podcast and i knew nothing about podcasting at the time uh but it dawned on me that even if it was through a digital interface like we're doing right now if i could have naked face conversations with people it might save my life and so i i committed to recording the conversations and not necessarily airing them but just to be able to have the meaningful discourse and see people's faces was really really powerful for me so um but yeah i left because there was a series of events and i think the final straw for me was when i was chased down the street with a by a woman who had a knife screaming that I was a murderer because I was not wearing a mask. And this was very close to my home. And uh, it was, it was after a series of other events, like having my phone wallet thing stolen from me and uh, I, they, they're longer stories, but yeah, I had a, I went to the eye doctor and they literally circled me like chanting, comply, 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 telling me to put on my well, mask. Well, 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 well. Yeah exactly and then they finally like broke what felt like a seance telling me that if i didn't comply they were going to escort me on i i would be arrested so yeah there were there were several events like that where i kind of finally felt like it was it was time for me to get out but the medical industrial complex is not a cult and that's what i keep saying 
Absolutely no. not. No. They they care about your health and they just think you're too stupid to know how to take care of your own health. And so therefore they're going to do it for you. They they really love you. Absolutely. Well, I, I always say this. I broke my arm when I was 12 and they put plates in it. And uh, today I hold mitts for at a boxing club. It's part of part of my limit. Living comes from working at a boxing club. And I'm very thankful. I believe in orthopedics and physical therapy very much. I believe that part of science yeah. is great. Um, well, acute allopathic medicine, I think, has done wonderful things. There's definitely things that medicine has done to incredibly advance humanity and yeah, I think we're all grateful for that. But the big pharma, big pharma, medical industrial complex is uh, not necessarily always looking out for humanity. <laughs> so they get this like credit card of humanity, of karmic credit card, and they swiped it and they go orthopedics and they showed that to the whole Western world. They showed that to Hong Kong when the when the city of london infiltrated china they show and they go wow orthopedics wow oh thank you western gods karma credit card and they swipe 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 get the jab comply comply blah, blah, blah. you know what i mean and it's just like they're we're at the end of the rainbow now now it's like you have to almost throw everything out but then what do you you know this <laughs> yeah sorry i always get waves of anxiety when i talk about this shit because it's real um it's real. You know, and I, I said this on a podcast before I had like a comedy existential crisis about one year ago when the Romo room closed. That was my favorite club to perform here in Austin. And then I ha I was all of a sudden an artist without a like a lost puppy without a, a place to play. And yeah. then I, I went through a dark time where I was like, what's the point of any of this? If we're just pacifying the laziness of audiences and comedy is not a call to action. You know, comedy doesn't matter if the artist doesn't know anything. If the artist gets in the green room for an unpaid guest spot where they bully themselves to bump everybody and then they're Ubering to their fucking sushi, that person might as well be dead. <clears throat> oh, my wow. manager got me a hotel. How do you for, really feel? My manager got me a hotel for an unpaid guest spot. Let me douche the whole room. Uber sushi, Uber Go die somewhere. The art form only matters when the artist knows anything and is curious infinitely. That's when the yeah. com com comedian can lift the level of the vibration in the room instead of cap it. So that's why I feel like there's a direct line of sight from my crisis existentially to Rebels for a Cause. My vibration rose to that level. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I also think that comedy is incredibly powerful because the laughter is like it's medicine and i think it builds community and camaraderie and it is incredibly healing you know where i it was part of why rebels for cause was so important to me because i feel like art is so powerful and it's powerful in a way that intellectual information uh, can't be because it, you're dealing, you keep talking about your cerebral cortex, right? When you're dealing with intellectual matters that we are rational beings, and that's great that we're rational beings, but we're also emotional beings and we're also instinctual beings. And there is something visceral that occurs when we are engaged with art, whether it be comedy that makes us laugh and then we suspend our disbelief where we forget our troubles and our if despair that may plague us we forget all these things because we're immersed in that moment and we are viscerally moved and the same thing happens with music music's incredibly powerful visual mediums uh film can tell stories that 
I mean, you know, intellectually, we might reject if we were to just read or watch a lecture. Uh, but if we if we are engaged in a story, we will engage in a suspension of disbelief uh, momentarily in order to follow this story through. Uh, and that's that's really, really powerful. So I wanted something where people weren't just, you know, in, immersed in information overload as much as I think the information is incredibly important and powerful. I don't want to leave people just black pilled and overwhelmed. I wanted to build community centered around something that was fun and engaging uh, and enjoyable. Yeah. It was great. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, Courtney Turner dot com rebels for a cause dot com will soon populate with more road dates, including Texas and Florida. Any yeah. any details there? Are you still just uh so Looking. we are currently in Florida right now, and this week we will be scouting uh, locations. We are looking at the West Palm area, and we are looking at the dates of uh, October 13th through 15th, that weekend. That it's We're not 100% because we need to lock down venues first before we can confirm anything. Uh, but that is kind of what we're looking at loosely right now, and we will be updating on the website, the Rebels for Cause, Rebels Floral for spelled out cause.com. And we'll update. We're also in the process of uh, post production on all the great acts and speakers, and we're going to be segmenting them out. We do have it up on the website and on my channel. I have the, the full live stream, but this way you can see each of the individual ones, and it'll be in high def versus the just live stream. So it'll be. Uh, a better resolution and uh yeah so we're working on that and hopefully we'll start segmenting clips and stuff as well anything else you got that we left off the tables first plugs for you um well just my website you, you can see how i spell my name it's like courtenay uh it is pronounced courtney but it's just courtenay turner.com so c-o-u-r-t-e-n-a-y-t-u-r-n-e-r.com and uh, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Courtney. Uh, uh, my website, ericcollerbach.com, uh, August 17, 2023. Um, there will be a show at the Vulcan Gas Company called Illuminati Confirmed with Klaus Schwab Jr. and Harrison Smith. And then once a month thereafter. Uh, so go to ericcollerbach.com for oh. those show dates i'm also going to be in baton rouge in september but all that is on my calendar we are also one more thing that uh, texas is what we're looking to do next after florida and we're thinking that'll be maybe three four months after so maybe around january and we are looking at the austin area for that so hell yeah well i'm a boot on the ground you know i'm just i, I live in courtney turner's world if she tells me to go talk to a <laughs> venue i'm gonna go talk to a venue if she says hey, hey that yeah. guy owes me if she goes, hey, that guy owes me $100, um, I'm going to rough him up a bit and I'm going to rob him. Okay, so I'm just a soldier in your corner. You know, you showed me love. I'll show you love. So thank you so much, Courtney Turner, for Rebels for a Cause. What a great event. Uh, it it kind of recalibrated my life's purpose and, and uh, you know, some good things came from it for me. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're awesome. We really enjoyed it. Highway Diary, episode 382 with Courtney Turner is in the books. Bye, everybody.